Good morning, church. Good to see you all today. Um, we'll be on page 923 in our Bibles around the room. Acts um, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made no choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, or witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them as a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has sat in every city, those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is the reading of God's word. Pray with me, church. Amen, church, we are his. God, we praise you. We praise you as our Lord and as your people. Thank you for making us yours by your grace alone, by your blood alone, by your love alone. We did nothing to deserve such mercy, and we are humbled by your graciousness. God, I pray you focus our wandering hearts on your word, that you magnify your message and fill our thirsty souls with your Holy Spirit. Speak through Pastor Duane as he moves through your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, I am from San Diego, and I am cold. Um, 
you, you, you probably can't see it where you're sitting, but I, I literally have goosebumps right now. So if the, the temperature goes below 70, my body, it starts to set into hypothermia. So uh, just got to know that about me. I thought I'd start off this morning by telling you a few things about me. Uh, I've been married to my beautiful wife, Amy. I think I got a picture of my family here for uh, 16 years. And I've got three beautiful daughters, nine, uh, six, and four, all girls. I never was able to figure out how to, to make a boy. But I, I love my, my family and the princess posse that is our house. It's good. Uh, I uh, planted a church a uh, little over 12 years ago in San Diego called the Resolved Church. And by God's grace, we've seen many, many people come to know Jesus there. And I, I love our church and I love our city and I actually love uh, Living Stones as well. We are also part of the Acts 29 network and a number of years ago became friends with, with Pastor Harvey Turner. And then he introduced me to Kyle. And it's just been so good as a partnership and joining together for the work of the gospel and the kingdom in our world together. And so uh, it's been really good to be with you. I've been really enjoying my time with you and the men's retreat this last weekend was a su- super fun, really good. I, I've been starting to get kind of a sense of you all's culture up here a bit, a little different than San Diego. I felt a little bit out of place at the men's retreat because I think I was one of the, uh, the few guys there that didn't have a beard. So uh, I, I just, uh, you know, you've got some big burly men. Uh, I, I, uh, I learned a lot about uh, hunting and, and fishing. You know, and, and other like interesting things to do with duct tape and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's been good. It's been, it's been really good. Uh, and we're, we're a little different down in San Diego. We, we don't have any deer. Um, we do have dolphins, uh, but you, you can't get a tag to shoot a dolphin. They don't let you do that. Um, just not allowed to shoot them. But one of the things I've, I've noticed about going to different places and different cultures, that one thing that seems to transcend culture is Music, right? Everybody loves music. I mean, I don't, I've never met, has anybody here is like, I hate music. I'm like, I'm a music, oh. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, one thing that's kind of unique about San Diego, what we're known for is our beaches and, and our surf. And because of that, we've kind of got this laid back community in San Diego. Nobody is ever on time for anything. Like if you're 10 minutes late, you're still probably early. Uh, and that's how we roll in San Diego. Everything's just a little bit slower, just kind of chill. Uh, and I think one of the guys musically that epitomizes chill is Jack Johnson. Uh, you guys know who he is? Uh, if you don't know him, basically he's this musician from, who, from Hawaii that's also a very chill place. And, and Jack Johnson's music is sort of the definition of of mellow. He's so mellow. Uh, Jack Johnson, he's, he's a favorite for beach-going surfers like, like me in San Diego. And to my knowledge, he's not a Christian or, or anything. I don't think that. But one of the things that you'll notice is that oftentimes people who may not even be Christians, they, they can say things that, that have real truth in them that tap into something about our humanity and, and who we are and, and what we need and the answers that we, we long for. And, and Jack Johnson has this song that speaks some things that our passage for today in Acts 15, I believe, is, is tapping into and trying to show us who God is and what he has done for us in, in Christ and, and what that means for us as a people together. So, so here's part of Jack Johnson's song, Better Together. Love is the answer, at least for most of the questions of my heart. Like, why are we here? 
Where do we go? And how come it's so hard? It's not always easy. Sometimes life can be deceiving. I'll tell you one thing. It's always better when we're together. It's always better when we're together. If there's one line that I hope you walk away remembering from the sermon today, it's that, that we're always better when we're together. We're better when we're together with God and we're better when we're together with one another. We're always better when we're together. So my sermon title for this morning, Reconciliation by Grace, and I've got three points for us to walk through to look into that and what that means. What really unites us, what really, um, what really, uh, what really divides us, what really divides us, what really unites us, and what really matters. So that's where we're going. So first point, what really divides us? So here's the, the situation that's going on here in Acts chapter 15. A few years before Acts 15 happens, there's these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, that they're they're church planters. They're these church planter dudes, and they plant this church in the city of Antioch. They share the gospel there, and a great number of people become Christians, and this church ends up becoming a pretty, a pretty large church. Uh, and it's the place, really cool thing about the church in the Antioch, it's the place where they came up with the word Christians. Before that, people that believed in Jesus, they were known as followers of the way. And they're like, hey, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Let's call ourselves Christians. So that's Antioch. And Antioch, it really becomes the first mainly big non-Jewish church. And it kind of becomes like a, a base church, a sort of mothership that Paul and Barnabas get sent out of and keep going back to. And so the church gets planted. But then after a few years goes by, this, this major debate breaks out in the church. There's this, there's division. Sometimes they don't always agree on some things that come up in, in church. That, that happens. And verse 1 of chapter 15 says, what happens is these men that came down teaching, and verse 1 says, they were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then verse 2 says it created no small dissension and debate. No small debate. People in the church, they're, they're upset over this. And there's, there's division. They're not united. And they're upset. And they're fighting. And, and what they're fighting over is, is male genitalia. That's, that's what's going on. Uh, now, you got to know that the the issue here, it's not like just some like health issue debate, like whether or not like you ought to eat gluten or not, you know, that's not, it's, this is next level. Personally, I, I really like gluten. I was asking dinner last night, do you have any like gluten pepper and shake some more on? Like I'm into that. Uh, circumcision, it was a big, big, big deal for them. Something was, that's tied to race tied to, to status, and ultimately salvation and relationship with God. Um, so everybody's here, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming, is familiar with circumstances. I see we, we have some kids in the room, some parents you might have some explaining to do later. But, but just so we're clear, circumcision is the, the cutting off of, of the foreskin or the extra skin at the end of male genitalia. So that's what it is. Now, the majority of people in, in our culture, with, if they're given... They have a baby boy. They circumcise their their boy, be, you know, for health issues, easier for cleaning and and all of of that. You know, I had I had three girls, so I never had to make the decision whether I was going to mutilate a boy or not. So um, we we didn't do that. Um, now in this church, there are these these two main races. There's there's Jews and there's Gentiles who are uh, anyone that's not a Jew. And, and most of them, these these two races, they had similar colors of of skin. But they dressed very different, wore their hair different, uh, spoke different, had different histories, and, and fought 
pretty different about almost everything. For Jews, circumcision was a, a huge religious issue. In in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, God comes to Abraham and he ends up being the very first Jew. And God gives him this covenant promise that God's going to save Abraham and his family. He's going to create this whole people through him that'll be God's special people. And he says, God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Hard to imagine, but old Abraham's like, all right, bust out his knife and just goes to work, you know, on him and his sons, you know. Um, and from then on, like any Jewish boys that were circumcised, born, they were circumcised on the eighth day. And anytime any, any men from other, uh, other religions decided they wanted to be Jews too, they, they circumcised them as well. That was the sign that now they're the people of God. So you can be really, really thankful for baptism. That's, that's, that's what we do now. A lot better. Hallelujah, right? Yeah. Now, circumcision for Jews, it was, it was the sign that they were the people of God. And that carried on for hundreds and hundreds of years until a bunch of non-Jews became Christians. And then the question is, okay, well, what do we do with them? What do we do with these non-Jews, these Gentiles that have become Christians? They need to be circumcised or not. You got a lot of you got a lot of seemingly Christian Jews that think, yeah, they need to. They need to be circumcised. One Jewish writer from that time period says this, anyone who is born who is not circumcised, who is not from the sons of the covenant which the Lord made, and if there is therefore no, there's no sign upon him then that he might belong to the Lord. In the, the Maccabean area, where in the, before the Jewish state was overtaken by the Romans, when they were still running things, they would not permit anyone into the country unless they were circumcised. I'm, I'm not sure how that worked at border crossings. So you've got like, you know, we got our TSA now. You go in the thing and they do this. I, I guess then they just had to like open the robe. I don't know, but that's what, that's what they did. Yeah. So that's, that's the Jewish perspective. Now you've got the Gentile perspective. The Gentiles, <laughs> it was any non-Jews, they just saw like circumcision as repugnant and ridiculous. Like, why would you ever do that? So Philo, he's an ancient historian there. He says that Jews were often ridiculed because of circumcision and they became targets of all kind of scorn and, and mockery and, and bathrooms and gyms and whatnot. So circumcision was a really big deal. But it's not even just circumcision. Look at verse 5 in Acts 15 with me here. Again, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and in order to keep the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, if you, you read it, it adds up all the laws. There's 613 commandments in the law of Moses. And basically what we have here is a bunch of Moses law abiding Jews who become believers in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. But their thinking is, okay, first you need to convert to Judaism and then you can believe in Jesus as Savior. And that's the, the process that, it, that needs to take place. They thought you had to keep both the Jewish law and believe in Jesus as Savior in order to be accepted and united with God. Now, this is the reason why this debate so significant because it's not just about circumcision but it's about what really saves a person (laughs) it's it's really about who jesus is and what he came to do 
The debate's really over the essence of the gospel itself. Whether it's the law and Jesus that saves you, or Jesus alone. That's the question here that we're dealing with today in Acts chapter 15. Now, Paul, he's wrapped up in this debate. And if you know anything about Paul, great guy, planted a lot of churches. He also wrote a lot of books that made it into the Bible. Two-thirds of the New Testament, Paul, Paul ended up writing. One of the books that Paul wrote is the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul tells this story where he went on this missionary journey to plant some churches, and, and he took this, um, this guy named Titus with him. And Titus wasn't a Jew. He was a Gentile, and Paul didn't make him get circumcised when he became a Christian. And so he goes to Galatia, and apparently some guys who Paul calls false brothers, they can't believe it. And so essentially what sounds like happening is they try to They try to sneak a peek at Titus in the bathroom or something to see if this is really true. And Paul ends up just going buck wild over it and says they're trying to bring us into slavery and that they're violating the truth of the gospel. And Paul and Peter, who's one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, they get in this huge fight about it, this huge argument. So bad, it says Paul gets up in Peter's face and reams him out not only for circumcision, but also because Peter, he, he had apparently gone back to his old Jewish ways where, where he wouldn't eat meat and he wouldn't eat at the same table as, as Gentiles. Paul gets in his face with Peter. You're not keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. I mean, I want to read it for you because so you know that I'm not making this up. The Bible just talks about weird things. So, like, I'm, this isn't me. This is the, this is the Bible. So, here's Galatians, and from Galatians chapter 2, first verse, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, that's the, trying to sneak a peek. Uh, uh, so they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Then in verses 11 through 14, it says, and, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then come some of the most beautiful and wonderful words in all of the New Testament. When Paul shares the truth of the gospel in verse 16, Galatians, he says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That won't work. Won't work. This is the key to the entire book of Galatians, the entire gospel. This is the key to Acts 15. It's the same thing, whether a person can be saved or justified by works and Jesus or through faith in Jesus alone. Paul's argument in Galatians, but we hotly, same thing, they're hotly debating in Antioch in Acts 15, is that no one can be saved or united with God by works of the law, no matter how hard you try. No matter how much you do, you will never be able to do it perfectly or do enough. That simply through faith in Jesus alone and his work, we can be united with God. 
We can be made just and right before him and he accepts us and we're no longer divided from him, separated from God. You see, all of us, we, we get separated from God. It's the human story we universally all share. We, we get divided from him. We get separated from him due to our own faults and failures, our sins, our fear, our, our guilt, our, our shame. We get divided and cut off from God. And no matter how hard we, we just try to repair that, that breach and try to find our way to God, we just can't seem to, to get there, can't bridge that gap. If each one of us are honest with ourselves, we've all felt this estrangement. Where we sense and know there's a God out there and we long to know him, but it's just too far. And we just feel distant and we don't, we don't know. Today, what for you, what is it that's divided you from God? That's separated you from him? It's caused distance between him. What's, what's, what's entered in? Do things come to mind? Do you sense that? You might be here today and truth is you're not really sure about all this stuff. You're not really a Christian, but yet deep down you long for God. What, what is it that's separating you from him? What Acts 15 is all about is that we get divided from God. We get separated from him, but not, it's not circumcision or any other works of the law of us trying to be good and do good and unite us with him. But we try that, don't we? Oh, we try. I feel like I hear this all the time. I was talking with my, my neighbor, Mario, the other day. And I love Mario. Uh, he lives a couple of houses up from me. And he's this Mexican guy. And uh, he, he loves scotch. So he comes over and, and we drink scotch together. I'll go to his house. But not too much because drunkenness is a sin. Uh, but uh, I've gotten to know Mario and, and, and enjoy hanging out with Mario. And I've, I've talked to him about the Lord and shared the gospel and invited him to church. But you know what his answer always is? Oh, no, man, I'm good. I'm good on that. You know, I'm just, I, I, I'm just, I'm just a, trying to do good and trying to be a good person. And I, I'm all good on, on that. I'm just trying to do my best. And, uh, you guys hear that? Pretty familiar, right? <laughs> but meanwhile, I know from the last time, like hanging out and he opens up to me, he's telling me how his, his wife and I are fighting because she thinks that he drinks too much and doesn't want him to get another DUI and, and his kids are growing up and how he wishes that he, he was closer with them and there's like strife there and all kinds of things going on in his heart and life. But he's all good. He's good. He's doing good, right? Don't need any of, the, of that. You see, law, it, it, it's, it, it can be not only just like trying to follow the 613 commandments of Moses, but it can be trying to do any good, any religious rule or spiritual principle that you put on yourself to try to earn favor with God, trying to make your life good, trying to make yourself good. It's so easy. It's so easy to get caught up into thinking that doing good and trying to be good is what makes us good with God and makes him happy. So easy. It can happen both with the irreligious guy like my friend Mario. It can happen with the, the super Christian type too. You know who I'm talking about? You know, the person that's super faithful, comes to church every Sunday, you know? You read your Bible every day. You give money. You, you listen to sermon podcasts regularly, you know? You're like a theology buff. You read theology right now. You're like analyzing this sermon to make sure I get justification by faith just right. You're waiting for me to, to share the Latin phrase, simo ustus et peccator. I'm not speaking in tongues. It's a Latin phrase about justification. And you look down on others who aren't as spiritual as you and 
you know, maybe not as theological as you, and you, know, you think you're better, you're better, you're good, you're a good Christian. Man, isn't it so easy to think that us just doing certain things makes us good? Even good godly things like reading the Bible and coming to church. <laughs> but it can actually divide us from him. It can actually separate us from God. Because you know what? God is not asking for our works. He's asking for us. He's not asking for you to do something. He's asking for you. He wants to be with you. He sent his son Jesus to do all the work for us on our behalf because he knows we couldn't do it. Can't do it. We can never be good enough to win his favor, to do what his holy law requires. His son do it for us. Paul's argument is that if you're thinking that you're better because of your your race, the color of your skin, or whether your skin is circumcised, or because you feel like a good person who does good things, putting your confidence in your own goodness actually divides you from God, and that's actually what divides you from other people too. Separates us. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus is the only one who has ever been fully good and done everything right. He's the righteous one, and he freely gives us his righteous, perfect life, his work for us, as if it was our very own. He just, he gives it to us, and then he goes to the cross, and he dies for all of our sins, all our faults and failures, for everything that has divided and separated us from God, so that we can be with God and know him. We're better when we're together. We're always better when we're together, together with God, And when we're together with God, that's what truly enables us to be with others. We're always better when we're together, but our works can't put us together. Only Jesus can. To see how he does that, let's transition to our next point, what really unites us. So Acts 15 is a a real turning point and climax in the book. Uh, One Bible commentator says it's the centerpiece and watershed of the entire book. So thank you for having me come and getting to preach from the best chapter in the entire book of Acts. So, um, and Acts is so great, isn't it? We, in our church, we went through the book of Acts about five years ago, and it's just so exciting because you're, you're reading this stuff on the page and you actually get to live it out as God's people. Hallelujah. It's wonderful. Uh, Now, tons of Gentiles have become Christians. But all that progress is at risk here in Acts 15. If they they tolerated this false gospel saying the Gentiles have to obey the law and become Jews first in order to believe in Jesus, then most likely all of the Gentiles like would have peaced out and be like, dude, we're not doing that. Crazy people taking a knife to, you know, we're not doing that. And if that happened, surely the message of the gospel of Jesus, it wouldn't have spread beyond the borders of ancient Israel. You know what that means? Surely none of us would be here today and even know who Jesus is. So you can thank God for Acts 15 because the reason why you're sitting here today. It's wonderful. Thankfully, God didn't let that happen. They had this big meeting in Jerusalem about it. The church authorities gathered. The whole church of Jerusalem's all there for this. All the big dogs are there. The biggest... Three biggest mouthpieces for the gospel. You got Paul there. You got Peter. You got James, Jesus' brother, who's the lead pastor of the, the first mega church, the one in Jerusalem. Each of them speak. They say pointed things. So let's look at what they say. Peter's first. He stands up, verse 7, to present his case. And he begins with an argument from the sovereignty of God. 
which means that God has power and oversight and control over all things that ever happen. That is truly God that saves. Look at verse 7. He says, God made a choice. God's doing that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then in verse 8, he refers to the time when he preached the gospel on Pentecost at the very first church service that ever took place. And he says that God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us as, as Jews. Then in verse 10, he responds to the false gospel that was going around, the very one that he himself had been led astray by that Paul had to confront him about in Galatians. He concludes his testimony, gives this succinct summary of the gospel. In verse 11, he says, we believe, here's the gospel, we believe we'll be saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. So Peter makes, his, makes it clear what his opinion is, what he thinks. He, he puts Jews and Gentiles together on the very same plane and says all are saved in the same way, and it's through belief in Jesus alone. Jesus alone, not circumcision or any other good work. Now, what's really interesting to me is what Peter says in verse 10. Look at it with me. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you putting a yoke on people that nobody has ever been able to bear? Uh, a yoke? Guys, know what a yoke is? It's pretty vivid imagery. I know we got tractors today, but back then you'd have an animal and it has a, a wooden bar on that's attached to some harness on the animal holding on. And then it's got ropes on it that come out, and then the plows behind it, and then the animal pulls the yoke. Now here's the image here. The yoke is of you taking on your life, trying to do good and be good, and you've got a yoke on your back. This is a human, and you're trying to pull the weight of life, and it's just too heavy, and so you, you collapse. You give up. You can't do it anymore. can't not bear it. That's the picture here. That is the picture. The yoke is a reference to the law, and Jesus talked about this himself. In Matthew 6.20, Jesus says clearly, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, scribes and the Pharisees, they were these guys that were really good at keeping the, the law. They didn't just read the law of the Bible, the 613, but they memorized them. And then they added laws on top of laws. They wrote them down in these books called the Talmud and the Mishnah. And so they would like, for example, they would have laws about how many steps that you could take, count them out on Sunday to make sure that you don't violate the Sabbath law of resting because you don't want to do too much work on the Sabbath. So they're, they're, they're law experts. Jesus point, hey, even if you do all of that, that's still not enough. You cannot be good enough to achieve the perfection of God. Even with all that, it's still impossible to gain one's own righteousness to make themselves good before God. So Jesus says five chapters later in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29, here's what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here it is. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the offer that Jesus gives to us to take his yoke, to take, to take the, the yoke that we're trying so hard at, to take it off our shoulders and to let him bear it. Jesus, oh, so good here. See, Peter he remembered Jesus' words. He remembered Jesus saying that. 
that no one can bear the yoke of the law no matter how hard you try. That's why we need Jesus, the perfect son of God, to bear it for us. He lives perfectly for it. He does that for us so that we can be saved and united to God. It's Jesus that really unites us. And that's why the gospel of Jesus is so much better, why it's so good. The reason is because you can try. You can try to obey and to fulfill the law with all of your strength and might, but you will fail sooner or later. See, so what happens so often with us is, you know, we get convicted about our sin. We start feeling bad about some things and we know there's some things that aren't good in our life that we need to change. And so you're like, oh, okay. All right. All right. I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to really try this time. And I, you try to, to muster up all the spiritual energy that you can to just really try to, to follow God and to do, to live a righteous life and to be good. But it lasts for a little while, but sooner or later it starts to peter out and you're just ugh can't do it. It ends up crushing you. And the reason it crushes is because it's, it's really believing in a false gospel that says God only loves you if you're good enough, and if you do good enough. The false gospel says if God will only love you if you're good. That's just not true. Oh, well, after Peter speaks, Paul speaks, and what's funny is Paul doesn't Paul doesn't really say very much. You kind of expect him to after everything that went down in Galatians with Peter. You know, I'm just guessing here. I just think he's like so stoked on Peter's answer. He's like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> he's like, just smiling here. Yeah, Peter, all right. <laughs> I don't need to say anything. He basically, he's like, yeah, what he said. Um, he just tells stories. He like, verse 12, he's like, hey, a bunch of people became Christians. Isn't that great? <laughs> like, that's what he does. And then after Peter and Paul spoke and James speaks and what, James provides his argument from Scripture. So he cites this passage from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, which clearly states that it's God's plan to save Gentiles and to have them called by his name. That all races are welcomed by God's grace. So, so James cites this, this passage and then he offers this final word in the matter with this practical solution that gets ratified in the next section in this letter that they send out to the church. We'll talk about what he says in our next point, but... I kind of want to end this point by, by just sort of pausing in the sermon for a minute and just ask a, a question. Um, what, what yoke are you living under? What yoke? How's the yoke of your life? My guess is there's a number of people who may be here in the room and you, you, you feel that yoke that Peter's talking about here in Acts 15 and, and you feel that yoke on your neck and it just feels heavy. Like life is just weighing you down. And it's just, life is hard right now and you're just tired. You're tired of trying. The truth is you just feel like giving up and saying, forget it. Forget it. What I want you to know today is that Jesus says his yoke is easy. He wants to take that yoke off of your shoulders. You don't have to bear that yoke. He will bear it for you. Jesus takes the the yoke so that we can be united with God, that we can be freed from that weight. Jesus took the, the yoke on his shoulders all the way to the cross, bore it all, so you might be freed to know and experience the goodness of God the Father.
we're better when we're together. We're always better when we're together. When we're together with God, receiving his grace instead of trying to earn it and handle lives ourselves today. Find rest for your souls in Jesus. None of us are strong enough to bear the weight of life. Only Jesus. That's why he's so good. That's why he's so good. That's why we love him. That's why we, we call the gospel good news. It's so good. Well, let's move on to our final point today and conclude by talking about what really matters. So Peter, Paul, James speak. Uh, and amazingly, all the church leaders, the apostles, the elders together, everyone there, they come to agreement on this. Verse 25 says, they're in one accord. Uh, verse 28, then they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So they saw the Holy Spirit as, as directing um, their discussion and debate. You see, debate and conflict, they're, they're not always bad things. Sometimes God brings up things that need to be addressed. There's, there's divinely inspired and necessary discussions that have to take place between us at times for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes you just got to hash some things out and God's at work in that. And so they come to one accord with the Spirit's help. And after that, they decide to draft this letter to go out to the churches. It's a short letter. It's got this introduction where they reference the, the problem and the reason for their meeting and, and the letter and their solution. So verse 24 says, here's, here's why we heard some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds. So here's, here's what the letter does. It, it, it offers three answers. It says, one, we didn't send these guys. They're not from us. And these guys are actually false teachers. So they identify false teaching and false teachers. Two, it says, now we are sending some guys that we love and trust. And if you've got any other questions, you can talk to them and they'll help you out, which is sweet. So basically they, they provide comfort and protection for the people by identifying qualified and proven leaders. That's why your, your pastors like, like Kyle and, and Garrett and Jim and these guys and your deacons and your community group leaders, they are such a blessing to you. Therefore, you're comforting your, for, for your protection. You trust them. Then the, the third thing it says that they, they don't want to lay any greater burden on them, and so they just have these four simple requests of just some simple instructions. That, and what's amazing in their simple instructions is there's no circumcision and there's no law of Moses, not any of it. None. Don't got to be circumcised. Don't have to obey the law of Moses. Jesus fulfilled all of it. All of their requests basically boil down to not worshiping foreign gods. That's what they're because they got no problem with that if Jesus has become their God. Uh, meat sacrificed to idols, drinking blood, un- eating uncooked animals, and, and sex with temple prostitutes. That was all part of, of uh, worship of foreign gods, Greco-Roman gods. So essentially, James says, hey, Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and you're free to all eat whatever you want all together as long as it's not this cult worship eating thing. So do that. Enjoy it. Pretty incredible. What this is, what we have here is a a very loving call for the mission of the gospel not to create unnecessary divisions and barriers and instead to allow people of different races and different cultures, freedom to live for Christ and to retain their unique intricacies, their different cultural preferences and things like food and dress and drink and then to be the church together. It's what we call contextualization, that that the gospel is universal in its scope and its power and ability to be lived out in all kinds of different cultures and places and contexts all over the world with all kinds of very, very different people. That the gospel has the universal power to reconcile, to unite us with God, drawing us near 
as this universal grace that's, that's woven within it that, that makes us accepting and welcoming to people who are unlike us. Contextualization really is crucial to gospel mission. That's what matters. It's the mission here. See Peter Wagner, he's this expert guy on mission and church planning. I got a quote from him today I want to read for you. In obedience to Jesus, cross-culture missionaries go out from one ethnos or nation or people group to another in order to plant churches. The new people group has its own culture distinct from the, the culture of the sending church. In the new cultural context, what aspects of the church life will be different? Which theological principles and non-negotiables must be maintained? And, and which things that are need to be reformated, reworded, or refocused? What about music or, or language? And I would add food, drink. You know, dress, art, things like that. Wagner says, many missionaries have uh, uncritically superimposed their own highly culture-bound form of Christianity on converts in other cultures. When that happens, the gospel gets lost. And what what gets communicated is law instead of grace. That's what happens. When that happens, the gospel, it simply comes down as another rule or another requirement rather than a message of love a different message. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, my house is about 15 minutes away from the Mexico border, and we, we want to plant some churches down there. We would love to do that. Uh, if we were able to plant a church south of the border, and I go and preach the gospel there, and we, we start a new church there, but I refuse to speak Spanish, um, only speak English, you know, um, and you, you need to speak English with me. I'm not going to try and learn your language at all. Um, and if I refuse to to eat any Mexican food. I only eat burger and fries, which would be really stupid because we have the best Mexican food ever. Um, hallelujah, amen. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in our church worship, we're only going to sing, you know, like white songs in English. <laughs> you know, no, no mariachis, none of that. You know, like no songs in Spanish. And that's how we're going to do church down there in Mexico. Yeah. Got to speak English. Yeah, Got to speak my language. Got to eat my food got to sing my songs, and hey, want to be part of our church? Yeah. You see, when you, when you come to a person, you say, I'll love you, but, but first you got to change this, this, and this about you. <laughs> That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel says, Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, we were really far off. He brought us near. He condescended to us. He came to us. I'll give you a, another example. I'll tell you about my friend Stephen I met a number of years ago. And what you got to know about Stephen is when, um, when I first met him, he's, he's, a, he's a big man. He's a, uh, about 6'4", he's bald, uh, big dude. Um, and when I first met him, he had um, a, a big head of, of black curly hair and wore makeup and lipstick. He was a transvestite. And... Steve and I, we started hanging out and talking at my house a bunch and, and started talking to him about Jesus. And here was uh, Stephen's number one question when I, when I invited him to church. And that his number one question is if he would have to stop being gay in order to come to our church. And so my, my response was, I, I'm not even worried about that. Can we just talk about what it would look like for you if you found your identity in Christ? So he was beginning to talk about Jesus. And a lot of conversations in the course of nearly a year, um, he came to me one day and he said, you know, Dwayne, I, I, I think I'm, 
I'm ready and I want to become a Christian. And um, I'm just feeling like if I do that, God, he, he wants me to kind of leave like my homosexual lifestyle behind. And, and you know, he, he actually has HIV. He's, he's near death right now. And you can, you can pray for him, but he, he contracted HIV and, and whatnot. And um, he said, um, I don't think my desires are ever going to change. Is that, is that okay? But I, but I, I think I need to kind of leave those things behind and, and I really want to I, I identify myself. And my identity is, is as a son of God and that Christ is my savior. He's like, is that okay? That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Good. I don't have to tell him that you need to change any of that to become a Christian. Let's just talk about Jesus. Welcome him in. Welcome him into my life. Welcome him into my home with my kids and everything. See, when you come to a person and you say, I'll love you, but you need to change first. <laughs> That's not the gospel. Lord, help us. The gospel, it comes to us from the one who left heaven and earth to come wearing the clothes of humanity. Heaven's better than earth. Jesus left all the the privileges of his glory, all the sweet stuff of heaven, his, his cultural preference and likes and dislikes to come down here wearing a robe and sandals and speaking the language of the people. Jesus overcame not only that, but all the, our sin that, we, that distances us from God, all the barriers that divide us from God so that we know his love and grace. You see, the gospel is a gospel that truly loves people. And it still works today. It's what still turns hearts to Christ. And that's what really matters. The gospel opens its arms to all, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what their sins are, what their likes and dislikes are. We have to learn how to move to one another, accepting each other so that many might find the acceptance of God. I understand you guys have been talking a lot about, about race lately and, and my assistant right now, he's a young black man and he's been explaining to me, he's like, you don't know how far we've come toward you, Dwayne, and, and white culture in order just to have to be successful and to make it in society. We got to move toward each other, welcome each other in so that people might know the welcome of God. We got to learn how to do it together. The gospel reconciles us to God, uniting us with him so that we can truly be united together to be church together. And it's better. We're always better when we're together. And it's only Jesus who can truly bring us together. Our culture wants us. Long can't we just love each other and all get along, but we can't need Jesus to do that. He is what unites us. And that's the message that we have to share with the world. It's a good message. It's a call to lay down our preferences, to lay down our dislikes and likes in order to welcome others in. So one last question. Who do you know in your life right now who is unlike you that God is inviting you to welcome into your life? Who's a person? It's not like you. You very different from you, that God would want you to welcome into your life to to get together and have a meal with and get to know them. Who does God want you to share this good news message of Jesus that unites us? Who does he want you to share it with? I started out the sermon today with the Jack Johnson song, Better Together. In that song, he says he knows that, that love is the answer, but he acknowledges that his striving for love isn't working. Trying to do good. 
still questions, why do I exist? What, what am I supposed to do with my life? And why is life so hard and deceiving? He wants to be in relationship, to be together. But God offers in the grace of Jesus Christ is a way, the way of love, welcoming us into his arms, not through our earning it, but through Jesus who earns it for us, bringing us to God. And when we experience that and know that welcoming grace, it just turns our hearts and make us welcoming to others, all kinds of people experiencing the goodness of God together. Yeah, we're always better when we're together and the way we get together is through Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness that you are, you are so kind and compassionate. Oh, thank you for sending your son to overcome all the things that separate us from you. Jesus, thank you for taking our burden on your shoulders and dying for our sin in our place and rising in that you live today. And thank you for sending your spirit so that we might sense and feel and know your goodness. Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you help us to be one with you as you are one, that we will be one together. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's give Dwayne a hand. Thank you, Dwayne.